Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Well Said. Today we have two experts I've asked to join us, Dr. Jay Green, a Senior Research Fellow at the Heritage Foundation, and Dr. Arthur Millick, Executive Director at the Claremont, uh, sorry, sorry, Center for the American Way of Life at the Claremont Institute. Our topic today is how critical race theory is taking over college campuses. There is no denying that today uh, race is the center of most conversations in policy. But does the obsession with race actually have something to do with the world's history in racial division and slavery, or is there a more insidious goal here? Keep in mind that America is probably the only country in the world that does not identify its culture with a specific ethnic heritage, but instead with a political heritage. This has not historically insulated us from uh, the US from issues surrounding racial discrimination and prejudice. However, it has insulated the US from being completely taken over by various progressive totalitarian movements that we have seen throughout history around the world, such as Marxism and fascism. Unfortunately, that does not mean that we get to avoid having to defend the American way of life against these far left ideologies. Just about every American generation can actually look back on a certain ideological battle that has taken place where America's political culture is being debated and is at risk of being engulfed by dangerous and stealthy movements which focus on socialism, racism, and anti-Americanism. It is important to note that racism can take many forms. It can even take the form of anti-racism. The goal of these many forms is to disguise its true goals, which is to gain political control and power. There are many ways to gain political power, so why racism? Is race such an immutable quality that no one can change about themselves, and therefore it is the best target for a tactical identity war? And why an identity war? Is it simply the easiest path to make broad sweeping claims, or is there more to this strategy? My hope today is to answer these questions and then some with Dr. Jay Green and my good friend Arthur Millick, who have dedicated much of their work to understanding our education system and how it has been infiltrated by identity politics. So Arthur, let's start with you. What is critical race theory, first off, and where did it come from? Well, first of all, thank you very much uh, for having me. And just to correct the record, I'm not a doctor yet. Oh, uh, I, I may be a doctor. <laughs> I guess I'm just anticipating. <laughs> yes, thank you. But you're anticipating maybe by five or 10 years ahead of time. So we'll, we'll see. Uh, critical race theory, uh, I, I, I prefer the term identity politics. Um, it is in a way easier to explain. It's in a way more commonsensical. Uh, identity politics is a misnomer, that term. It sounds like it is a politics of identity where everybody gets their own identity. In fact, that's not true. Um, the truth of the matter is that it divides the world into the oppressed and the oppressors. The oppressed must struggle to find their identity and liberate themselves from all of the racist superstructures that have been erected, so the uh, legend goes, to take away their identity. While the oppressor, of course, who the left is not shy in defining, uh, they mean, they say this openly, uh, all white Americans, but especially white males, their identity must be taken away from them. Somehow the root of their identity is some kind of evil. They are very vague in explaining precisely how that happens. They say culture, they don't go so far as to say biology, at least so far as I've seen, but the implication is that it is so deeply rooted in uh, especially American whites, but especially uh, uh, white males, that uh, they cannot freely let go of their oppressive evil ways. Uh, their institutions must be taken away from them. They must be humiliated. 
and they must be made to perpetually apologize for the sins of their fathers. That is the quick and dirty of what this is. And so, as my colleague Josh Mitchell likes to say, uh, and I think he's right about this, this is a kind of theological movement which uh, takes the categories of Christianity in saying that uh, parts of the world are good, pure, unstained, and other parts of the world, namely the oppressors, are fundamentally stained. Um, but unlike in Christianity, where there is a forgiving God, in the world of identity politics, it's a, it's a, a winner-take-all game. Because since there can be no forgiveness, since there can be no final reconciliation, there must be this perpetual antagonism, or as the left says, transformation, which is the kind of polite bureaucratized term for it. But there must be perpetual antagonism until uh, there is, who knows what the real end goal is, but uh, I think it means basically the moral and intellectual rule of the so-called uh, marginalized groups. So let's define a lot of terms have been thrown around with regard to critical race theory. Um, so you're mentioned you're so you're stating that identity politics, critical race theory is just another form of identity politics, but more focus on kind of the racial side. But there are other aspects of identity politics that have been used as well. Um, can you go a little bit into that, but then also explain the term in, intersectionality, because that is something that people are hearing a lot, but they don't really know how it connects the dots with these. Yes, uh, it's, a, it's a very important term, intersectionality, in this worldview, uh, because it is an attempt to create a hierarchy, uh, a hierarchy of who deserves more, who is uh, based on the standard of who has been oppressed more. So at the bottom of that hierarchy, as I've already said, are white males, but, and I should add Christians generally. Um, but at the top of it, this is a, a bit of a struggle and it's not clear, but I can give you an example of how one would calculate it. Ilhan Omar, for example, is black, she is a migrant, and she is a woman. Uh, the intersection of those three, let's say, variables of oppression mean that she has more moral and intellectual authority than everybody down the totem pole of this hierarchy. Um, so it's a, it's a quick and ready way to say, this is kind of the fundamental point that I think is so, so important to get across. And Ibram Kendi basically elaborates it. It is that um, he says that the marginalized are intellectually and morally superior to their oppressors in a fundamental way. And here's the argument for that. They're morally superior because they understand justice. He even says it is a gift to have been marginalized because they understand justice in a way that, uh, who deserves what, in other words, in a way that the oppressor fundamentally cannot. So there's a kind of superior moral faculty. But in addition, there's a superior intellectual faculty among the marginalized because they can understand all of the white superstructures, the superstructures of cisgenderism. They can grasp those superstructures in a way, again, that the oppressor fundamentally cannot, partly because they are somehow intellectually blinded to it and partly because they, as it's claimed, are so interested in preserving those things. So in other words, what, what you see here is while the, the, the categories of who is at the top of that totem pole 
are constantly shifting, nevertheless, you can see how, uh, you, uh, how you understand who's at the top. It would be who is the most intellectually and morally superior on account of being the most marginalized. But if Ibram Kendi's goals were accomplished um, in that the oppressed or the marginalized are then kind of put into power and put in charge of their own destiny, would there not would that not flip on its head? The, the would they not become the oppressors? Would they not now become intellectually deaf to their kind of like preserving their position of power? If that makes any sense. It makes perfect sense, and it's a very good question. Um, of course, this is never examined. Uh, there is an interest in not examining that. Partly, let's say, modestly, they don't think that it's possible that such an outcome will be achieved. Uh, but partly, they don't examine it because, uh, let me put it this way. You know, um, if you write a scientific paper at least 10 years ago, uh, it goes through a peer review process. And there are scientists as competent as you, in physics, let's say, scientists as competent as you, who will do all of the calculations that you claim to have done. And if you're wrong, you're wrong. And there will be a retraction and you will be humiliated. In the identity politics world, because it is the air we breathe, because it is the most sacred thing, at least in the past, let's say, five to 10 years, there is no peer review process. There is nobody that, almost nobody, I should say, that asks these kinds of reasonable questions. And if you dare to ask these kinds of reasonable questions, you'll be called a racist. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, once you start digging into these absurd theories, you see that they're riddled with absurdities and contradictions. But the only reason that those absurdities and contradictions never, get, never are given voice is because there's no equivalent in the public square to a peer review process on these theories. Instead, of that, somebody like Ibram Kendi gets a promotion from AU to Boston University, makes probably, who knows, three, $400,000 a year at that university, probably has almost a zero teaching load and charges $50,000 to come to campuses to give talks. In other words, that's the, that, that's the absurdity of our public square, that, there are, that everybody flatters Everybody simply accepts and swallows the dogma, and there is no equivalent of a peer review process here. Because if there was, all of this would come out as right. you know sham. Yeah, yeah. Before we turn to Jay to discuss um, how it's being, how identity politics and critical race theory are being operationalized on campuses, um, Arthur, I just want to ask one more question with you. It's if you could explain why colleges and universities, and maybe Jay, you can touch on this too. Um, why their environments are kind of like these hot spots for facilitation of identity politics and critical race theory. Why, why is the university kind of like the main, the main spot for this to, to take place? Yeah, no, it's a wonderful question. Uh, and it would take quite some time to elaborate. Uh, I won't do that. I'll give you just quick and ready answers. Uh, number one is that this is what the university is. This is what is, uh, this premise I think is very misunderstood among conservatives who are constantly going after uh, kind of small ball reforms to universities. You know, let's get an extra tenure line going where we'll put in a conservative or let's bring Ben Shapiro to campus and, you know, create a little bit of a controversy. And that's how we'll really get at them uh, to reform the universities. What they don't understand is this is what the universities has become. 
This is the sole doctrine that justifies the existence of universities to find the arguments for so-called marginalization and to use them to become more and more powerful and to influence more and more generations of young people to believe uh, in these doctrines. And so my view is that, well, there are alternative uh, narratives. I think that there are uh, just true positions. I don't think this one is true. But the problem is if you start reforming the university, you ask yourself, okay, well, who's going to teach the alternative side of, let's say, history, social science, political philosophy, whatever. And then you find that there actually aren't that many people. There aren't that many people because almost everybody has swallowed the dogma that history is the history of marginalization and oppression of liberation from that oppression and the triumph of the marginalized over the oppressor. That is the only narrative that exists. And there aren't even people, or there are, I should say, very few people that can actually give an alternative reading. Jay, do you have thoughts on this? Sure. So um, I, I, uh, I, I think that Arthur offered a very useful definition to start uh, of critical race theory as a particular manifestation of identity politics, um, where uh, one of its main features is to divide the world into oppressors and oppressed. And then importantly, there are political implications of this. And the political implications are that the oppressed should be treated differently than the oppressor. So this is a fundamental deviation from American norms uh, historically. Uh, while we have often strayed from our ideals and fallen short, um, we have always uh, upheld as an ideal uh, that people should be treated the same um, ultimately, right? This is in, enshrined in our founding documents, um, although there are deviations from it even in our founding documents, but, but still there was this aspiration uh, for, for treating people the same when similarly situated. And um, so, so critical race theory is this fundamental departure from a long American tradition. Um, and rather than aspiring to treat people the same, it aspires to treat people differently uh, based on whether they belong in the oppressor or oppressed class. And then people get to fight over who gets to belong in which category um, and, uh, and who is deserving of more harsh treatment or more um, uh, generous treatment. And uh, it's true this is an idea that has come out of university campuses and spread elsewhere. Um, although I, I don't think it's very much of an intellectual movement. Um, this is really a political movement. This is really about people aspiring to get stuff. They want stuff and power, and this is a way to get stuff. And so it's, it's, it's not a very serious intellectual movement. Um, I think as Arthur uh, was, was suggesting earlier in, in the sense that there are a lot of important questions that are unresolved in this, this type of thinking because it's not important for them to resolve it. Uh, it doesn't matter. Uh, what matters is to win politically, to gain power and stuff. Um, and so universities are, I think, are a hotbed for this because um, they are places that are lacking in accountability for uh, results. And so you can enable, facilitate uh, nonsense um, because there isn't a consequence for nonsense 
uh, as much as there is in other realms of life. I mean, it's true that American Express has embraced um, uh, some ideas of critical race theory and some of their corporate trainings, um, but they don't really want it. Uh, it's just sneaking in there. Um, uh, and ultimately there's a negative consequence to them for doing it. And over time, they're gonna figure that out and get rid of it. But universities don't have the same accountability. And so they can indulge nonsense more freely. So can you talk a little bit more about how it has been operationalized on campus? How are universities attempting these goals? What systems and programs are they putting in place? You just came out with a great report on some of these diversity, equity, inclusion staff members that universities have been hiring. So can you talk a little bit about that and also just kind of talk sure. about how they're labeling these as, as various terms? So, so I think I differ maybe a little from, from Arthur in, in that um, I don't think that uh, critical race theories are actually particularly popular on campus. Um, the, the most students don't care and don't believe uh, these ideas. And even most faculty don't actually want to be told what to do with regard to how they treat different students. They, they don't want to be bossed around. They want to be left alone to do whatever they want. And, um, and so fa neither faculty nor students particularly like uh, these ideas, but they're being advanced nonetheless. And this is true in the broader society too. In our broader society, the ideas of critical race theory are really unpopular. Um, large segments of the population very much oppose the idea that we should treat people differently based on whether they're in the oppressor or oppressed category. And so how, how does this unpopular thing get enshrined nonetheless? Well, it's because one side is being organized politically and the other side isn't. And the, the method of organization of one side on campus is the diversity, equity, and inclusion staff. So universities a long time ago uh, started building up um, uh, uh, centers to help welcome students from backgrounds that were less common on campus. And uh, over time, uh, whenever incidents occurred on or off campus, an easy thing for university administration to do to satisfy complaints was to commit more resources and staff to these efforts. So they grew. And as they grew, they outstripped their need and ability to be welcoming uh, to diverse groups and instead turned into political activist organizations uh, that organize uh, one side of the critical race theory debate. Um, and they organize it specifically by um, uh, developing trainings or purchasing trainings that, that um, enforce their side of the debate, that, that, that uh, articulate what the ideological orthodoxy is. Um, and they also um, then equip you know, a minority of activists, students and faculty on campus with the language they need and an address they can go to when they have complaints. So they have organized one side, uh, which is a minority, to prevail over the other side. And this technique of building out a diversity, equity, and inclusion staff is being reproduced 
in lots of other organizations in society. So corporations are building these things, K-12 schools are building these things, local governments are building these things. It's the same idea where they are pledging themselves to what sound like good goals of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and they are good goals, but what they're really doing in, in, in practice is serving as political activists, organizing one side in the debate, and one side in the debate that is foisting ideas that are really fundamentally unpopular and inconsistent with long-held American traditions. So who are the they in all this? Is this like kind of the, the, the administrators? Who's deciding, who's making these decisions to dedicate funds to hiring DEI staff? So I, do, I don't think this is something that, that uh, university administrators uh, decided they wanted. They, there was no meeting where, where they sat down and said, this is what we want to have happen. Um, this is something they've stumbled into uh, in much the same way that American Express or Bank America have stumbled into having diversity trainings where they teach that capitalism is bad. Um, they didn't mean to have that happen. But the way it happens is they start out trying to do something good, welcoming students from diverse backgrounds. And uh, then they face pressure whenever there are um, uh, incidents uh, on or off campus that, that, that raise questions of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And the easiest thing for a university to do to satisfy a political complaint is to commit resources and staff. That's what they do, right? So they, they just threw lines at, um, at these problems. Uh, they don't really care about them deeply. Um, and they created this very large bureaucracy of diversity, equity, and inclusion staff. By our calculations, the average university has 45 people working to promote diversity, equity, and inclusion. And, and to put that in perspective, it's 40% it's more than there are history professors at universities. It's, it's more than four times as many as there are people uh, dedicated to providing accommodations to disabled students, which is required by law, right? So this has grown to be a very large thing on campus. I don't think there was ever a master plan or intention for this to happen, but we've stumbled into it um, uh, because it was a politically expedient thing for administrators to do to satisfy complaints. Um, and, and, and now we're left with a... a a situation where the university itself is paying for and organizing one side of a political debate. Uh, and, and it's not clear that, that even if administrators wanted to reverse this, they wouldn't be able to easily without a very high price and they're pretty risk averse people. Um, and so they're trying to figure out how to, you know, get along with this DEI uh, monster that they've built. And the easiest way for them to do it is to continue to appease it. That's what they do. Yeah, so Arthur, I want you to respond to some of this here in just a minute, but first I just, um, so if they have kind of stumbled into this and as, as like you said, they, they've started creating solutions to these problems that they felt were gonna get bigger. And so they wanted to put staff in place to kind of mitigate it. Um, and now, but they, they, they then started to see, is it not that they didn't start to see that it was wildly successful in gaining funding, um, donors were attracted to kind of this diversity, equity, inclusion language, um, and also students who want to be kind of part of this social justice woke culture are attracted to schools that are kind of enforcing this, this ideology on campus. Um, and so then could it be, could that be part of the reason why it just started to grow into what you described as this monster that they now can't put back in the box? 
Yeah, I, I do think that there are, there's a segment of donors and there's a segment of students who are attracted to this, but I think we should be clear that these are minorities of students and minorities of donors. Most, most people in the country don't like these ideas. I mean, and they don't like them because they're so at odds with long held American traditions and people actually like America and they like their life here overall, right? And so, um, uh, so this is an, unpopular minority movements that is gaining ground through a coercive strategy. And the coercion is that they have one side that's organized and that one side that's organized uses the charge of racism or bigotry against their opponents. And it's a very powerful charge. Um, I, think, I think Arthur was mentioning this earlier um, you know, it's powerful to, to call someone a racist, um, uh, and, uh, and it's powerful in part because uh, racism is a great sin, um, and it is, and it's a great sin that America um, uh, has had problems with, right? And these are true. Um, you know, we did have slavery, and, and this is a great American sin. The question is, how do we move forward? Do we move forward by aspiring to the same ideals that we've always held of trying to pe treat people the same? Or do we uh, um, uh, atone for that sin by committing an opposite sin? And most people are not attracted to the opposite sin. Uh, they oppose that. Uh, they want to move forward to treat people the same. And uh, critical race theory is, is a minority movement going against that uh, um, long-held and popular American ideal. Arthur, did you want to add anything at all? Yeah, sure. Uh, well, I would just say that, um, just to add to the many things that Jay has said with which I agree, but to, to expand a little and, and maybe disagree, uh, I don't think that it's just a question of they're better organized than we are. Um, when you look at some of the data, which is, uh, you know, out there in the open, what you see is, number one, that they have an advantage to all of this, which is federal and state laws. Uh, disparate impact analyses, which are used relentlessly in the private sector. And so to go against, to disassemble these bureaucracies, you will be punished by federal laws. And so there are enormous risks. It's not, it's not simply a, a, a matter of organization. I, I would also add this, and actually let, let me expand that. Every, almost every state has an EEOC. That EEOC has immense power. Can you just for listeners, EEOC, what's that stand for? Yeah, it's the uh, Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. It was founded as a result of the civil rights movement. It is one of the many, many outgrowths of the civil rights movement, which uh, basically enforces disparate impact standards. Namely, you cannot have too few group, uh, 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 diverse representatives in your corporations, in your universities, in whatever place. Otherwise, the federal government will be inquiring and you may have a lawsuit on your hands. Uh, moreover, uh, the, the civil rights legislation uh, also uh, is in conflict with, I mean, I think this is just so obvious, with the freedom of association. You can no longer associate with whomever you want because that means exclusion. Um, uh, moreover, 
the EEOC now is beginning to and will continue to enforce speech inside of the private sector, speech that is harassing speech, speech that is uh, claimed to it is claimed to be is racist speech. So, um, you know, conservatives have for and, and libertarians have for a very long time been prudently critical of the federal government, its overreach, its expanded powers, the threat from that. But never have they looked at this specific sphere as one that has immense power, one that helps the growth of all of these bureaucracies, and that has actually become one of the most important moral bludgeons uh, of our time. Um, so that's one point. And one alter additional, very quick point is that I'm not so certain that uh, when people say on the right, you know, you go woke, you go broke in terms of corporations is simply true. I mean, these people are very smart that run our Fortune 500s. They've clearly made a gamble. Some have been muscled into it. That's certainly true. But others are taking a gamble. And it may be the right gamble because they very well know that there's no alternative to Amazon. You're not going to create an alternative to Amazon, a conservative one. And if you did, that would be absurd. Are you going to create an alternative airline that is for conservatives, of course, you guys are laughing, of course not. So actually the risks uh, uh, are overstated on the conservative side to these corporations. Hmm. So, so in addition to just being better organized, but also having, and Jay, I, I will like have you respond, but I just yeah, kind of sure. want to add this, having um, so, some backing of the law and of government institutions, um, is it also not just like there's something clearly attracting the younger generation to this theory, which is that this kind of you mentioned it before, Arthur, which this kind of more theological fight, something where you're fighting evil. And if you truly believe that this is evil, this is something that, you know, every young person who's an idealist wants to kind of be a part of this fight. So I think there's that kind of like romanticism attached to it, which is also adding to the fire uh, of what's going on on campuses because campuses have these young um, these young ideological students who do want to you know think and act outside of kind of the world that they've known their whole lives and they want it they're constantly looking for it to kind of fill that void um, yeah. so feel free to respond to that either of you and then Jay I want you to respond to what Arthur said as well well I would just I think that's exactly right and you know the right is always saying well when are we going to have a, uh, a religious revival well, you're living through one right now. It was an enormous mistake for libertarians and conservatives over the last generation to have this kind of very shallow, easygoing atheism and think that, no, everything's going to be fine. You know, we can just live for material pleasures and glutting ourselves. And that's really what life is about. And you can form a political movement and citizens that protect their country on the basis of that. Of course you can't. What you have instead are people that as all human beings look for meaning and look for a cosmology that articulates to them what is good and evil and how they ought to live their lives. And this is a very powerful one and a very attractive one, which is reinforced by all of the elite institutions of the country and promises you honor, respect, and professional success. And so it's so obvious why, you know, the right is uh, right now anyways, on the losing side of this. I, I think that's exactly right. I mean, this is a religious movement. Um, uh, 
precisely because it does help define for people good and evil, um, gives them purpose. Um, uh, but like Arthur mentioned at the very beginning, um, this is a religion without a forgiving God. Uh, so it's a very harsh religion. Uh, it's a very uh, cruel uh, 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 sort of, of religious movement um, uh, because there is no possibility for redemption. Um, but it's also an easy religion for people because it, it um, defines sin without people having to confess their, th that they are themselves sinners, <laughs> right? System, the system is the sinner. Um, they're just cogs in it. Um, so yes, that's all very attractive. But, but again, I think the vast majority of people are, are not drawn to this still. I mean, in other words, while I think uh, this movement has gained ground on us and um, is, is posing a more serious threat. Um, I think that we should hold hope uh, in the fact that, that vast majorities of Americans continue to not like this new religion. Uh, and actually a vast majority continue to like the old kinds of religion um, uh, that involve a forgiving God. Um, and so, um, uh, now, uh, you know, as to the law, I'm just just to bring up that point. I, I agree that uh, that disparate impact uh, interpretations and, and threats of lawsuit do intimidate organizations and help uh, with the one sided organization here. But the law is actually unsettled on a lot of these matters. And there's a lot of fighting still to be done there um, because it's also pretty clearly in violation uh, of a reasonable interpretation of constitutional law to place people in different categories and treat them differently based on, on their membership in those categories of, as oppressor or oppressed. So, you know, sorting students into affinity groups and treating them differently based on their affinity group is also pretty clearly against the law, but organizations, schools, universities are doing this anyway. Um, and so, so, it's, it's not merely a matter of a particular interpretation of the law. It's, it's this particular interpretation being organized by one side of this debate better. And I think uh, conservatives have been slow to, to joining this battle. Um, and so the only way to beat an organized interest is with an opposing organized interest. And so that's, that's the way forward um, is for conservatives to, um, to think of how to form competing organizations that have their own competing visions of the good um, and, and appeal to the hearts and minds of, of students, uh, citizens and corporations. And I think we have a better, more popular argument. Um, and so I'm hopeful actually that I think we can prevail um, I think that that part of how the other side has made advances um, is because they have snuck up on us um, and snuck up because um, the, it, these organizations of diversity, equity, and inclusion staff in, um, have, have grown slowly, um, and also because they're, they're masked with very positive sounding words. I mean, there's nothing wrong with being for diversity. There's nothing wrong with being for equity. There's nothing wrong with being for inclusion. These are all good things. The problem is that these are good words being used to mask bad ideas. Yeah, so I wanna tease out the goals here of these types of movements real quickly before we move on to solutions. Um, so you said that the vast majority of, of Americans are most likely than not um, 
they're not interested in critical race theory and they don't think it's it's a good good idea or a good policy um, prescription. But I think my concern is mostly like what the actual goals of the far left here is, is essentially to, to take that majority and although they may not agree with these really kind of radical ideas, the radical idea will lead to a compromise or a way of life that is slightly just more in the direction of the radical ideas. And so it's like this kind of giving an inch every generation and then eventually you see that we've actually gotten there over a very long period of time, but we're still at the, the end goal, which is essentially to, to agree with what this critical race theory and these identity politics uh, theories are all about. Um, what do you both have to say about, about that goal? Do you think that's a, that's a realistic understanding of the goals here? Yeah, so I mean, I, I, I think that's true. Although, I, again, I think that this is less of an intellectual movement than we might give it credit for. Um, this, you know, people have just seen an opportunity for power and stuff, and they're just grabbing it to the extent that they can. Um, and um, so, like a lot of, uh, you know, high-minded. Um, uh, I mean, look, it, it, this this whole movement bears some similarities to uh, communists and socialist movements around the world, right? I mean, there, there are similar language about equality, uh, similar uh, one-sided organization of a minority movement, but, um, uh, and, um, and similarly, in the end, it'll be a minority that simply grabs disproportionate power. They just want it to be them um, rather than someone else. And they, they don't really hold dear uh, abstract principles of equality, really. And so they don't want, in the end, really equal treatment under the law. What they want is unequal treatment with me in charge. Um, uh, and so there's an authoritarian quality to, to these efforts. Um, and that's what we're drifting towards. That's the real threat here, I think. Um, and uh, But I, I don't think that there is... Um, uh, much of a, a, a sincere intellectual uh, effort behind this. But I don't, I don't know. I mean, maybe, maybe Arthur sees, sees something more serious here. I just see this as kind of a political power grab. Hmm. Arthur, for goals? Well, uh, uh, I, I don't think so um, for the reasons that we already mentioned. You know, people really believe. And I think that, you know, when we talk, <laughs> you know, uh, one of the mistakes that President Trump made was he thought coming into office that everybody was just cynical and corrupt and you can make backdoor deals. But people that want power, in other words, you can just sit down with them, come to an agreement. We're both you know, corrupt. Here's your slice of the pie. Here's mine. We agree. And then we say whatever we want publicly. Actually, uh, a lot of the people involved in this movement deeply believe. I mean, we haven't talked about one element of this, but do you, do you think that, for example, the LGBTQ movement is just a power grab? No, I, mean, I actually, I think, I think you're, 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 you're making a good corrective point um, that I agree that there is a, a core activist group that sincerely believes and has religious fervor. Um, uh, however, um, 
they're not really the ones in charge uh, of this. The ones, uh, so university administrators who are throwing resources towards these things, they don't believe. The, the level of cynicism among people who repeat diversity, equity, and inclusion language is, is astounding, actually. Uh, the number of people who have to make land acknowledgments at the beginning of every you know, lecture that they host and don't believe it at all is astounding. Um, and so uh, the problem is that, that they're not able to resist um, those who fervently believe um, because they have lacked a core set of principles themselves that they can really believe in. Um, and so for them, it is a power grab, right? They can use this as a bludgeon to displace their enemies. Um, you know, uh, one dean gets to displace, you know, the provost because uh, they can accuse that person of not being sufficiently woke. Do they really care? No, but they want to be provost, right? So the, the kind of petty organizational power grabs that will channel this movement uh, for their advantage is, is a lot of what's driving this forward. Um, even though I, I entirely agree that there is a core set of activists who truly believe. Well, the, maybe so. The problem is that the universities in a certain way are irrelevant. Uh, in other words, they've done their mission over the past 40 years, 50 years. Uh, the, 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 now they just uh, you know, propagate and continue to expand, but they're not the power centers anymore. Um, so that may be true uh, about some of the administrators, um, but the, the real institutions in the nation that call the shots, there are believers there. Um, and so I, I, I suppose, you know, one, one could put it this way, uh, with all of these deans that are cynical, um, you know, I don't think, and this is getting into solutions, which I take it. Yeah, you, we can, you, <laughs> you can start naturally going into that. Uh -huh. You know, my, my, my general view is that um, those deans, they shouldn't have jobs. My general view- Tons is, of people shouldn't have jobs. <laughs> yeah, well, but this is, no, that's, that's totally true. And this has yeah. been the problem of the right for a very long time is, you know, this, this hope that the public is on our side and that somehow things will get better eventually because people will wake up to the fraud or to the sham or whatever. But when you look at the circumstances of the country and Cherise kind of pointed to this, inch by inch, year after year, the right loses. And yet they never lose their hope. They lose their country, but they never lose their hope. <laughs> and you see just another example of this on immigration. I mean, the public has been, this is a question that I know Sharice knows a great deal about, the American public has been against illegal immigration for a very long time. And you know what? There's more of it than ever. Mm -hmm. And there's going to continue to be more of it than ever. I see absolutely no hope uh, uh, to just hope that somehow the problem will be solved. The, the issue is that the right needs to understand itself as a entity that is not just winning back institutions. We're not going to win them back. And in fact, I don't want those institutions on the right. They're rotten. On the universities, just as one example, we should be thinking about how precisely to defund them and let them be bled dry. Right now, there are something like 3,500 uh, colleges and universities in America. Why? Why are there so many? 
No other country has so many. In 1970, the college age population that was attending college was 20%. Now it's 40%. Why? Well, there are all sorts of hustles involved that show how it's grown. The history doesn't matter at this point in my view. What matters is using the power of states, there are many states that have these corrupt entities inside of them and taking away their money. And once you start thinking in this way, there are innumerable solutions that we can come up with that will be effective. But the right needs to start thinking about things in that matter rather than just thinking, well, enough people will wake up and then the problem will go away because I don't see that happening on a number of other issues. I, I entirely agree in, in that um, uh, we cannot prevail on hope. Uh, you prevail through organization. Um, so having people support you is not sufficient for winning. You have to have people and organization. And, and also, uh, I think you make a, a valid point, Arthur, in that um, defunding institutions that are promoting um, nonsensical ideas is, is, is important for forcing them to be accountable for actually having to earn their resources. So the more we subsidize higher education, the more nonsensical it can be. Uh, and obviously uh, we need to address the, the federal subsidies that facilitate that. Um, uh, but I do see hope on the side of actual organizations. Um, so if you look at uh, parent groups forming in school districts to show up at school board meetings to critique uh, critical race theory. Uh, now, I'm not saying they're all you know, brilliant or, or accurate, but it doesn't matter. There, there's a passion there and there's an organization there that is beginning to form um, at the local level and, and it's being assisted by organizations at the national level um, and they are gaining ground um, and, and the cynical university administrator or the cynical school administrator who doesn't really care one way or the other, if they see that it's a battle and that there are organized interests on both sides, they're less likely just to throw staff resources and appeasement to one side. They'll have to think more carefully uh, about that in the future. And that is what victory will look like over time is, is improved organization that forces the cynical to not simply appease one side. Um, and I think, I think there are signs of, of making progress on that, as we can see in, in the school board uh, battle over CRT. So on that note, I'm just kind of curious, until we get to the point where we can eliminate thousands of universities that are, <laughs> <laughs> that are, uh, that are damaging the minds of, of young students and, and trying to indoctrinate them into these theories, these ideologies, what is something that we can do today um, to combat critical race theory and identity politics on universities? Specifically, um, look at it from the perspective of if you're a student or if you're a faculty member, what can, what can these people do who really do care about stopping this on their campus? So I, I don't know that we, you know, we don't have to get rid of thousands of universities. It'll, if we don't subsidize, uh, then we will make it more accountable and it will be the right size given the demand. And also, just to be fair, I mean, the, the vast majority of, of what students are learning on universities is actually not um, critical race theory nonsense. Um, uh, the vast majority is very practical kind of vocational skills um, or traditional liberal arts. Um, that, that's what most academic instruction looks like. Um, and that's what most students are interested in. And that's what most faculty want to be doing. Um, 
what we need to do is to free those people from coercive elements on campus that are pushing them into espousing CRT goals, even if they don't believe them. Um, and I think reducing uh, subsidy of nonsense at the same time that we organize um, uh, the other side so that university administrators feel the heat from both sides so that they're a little bit more cautious about where they throw their resources and who they appease. I think that that is going to help a lot. Now, ultimately, once we can achieve a kind of level playing field, conservatives are also going to have to articulate a positive vision uh, for America that um, that that captures the ideals that that we truly believe in that can win people over with the same kind of religious fervor that CRT is uh, in its appeal to to their side. Um, I mean, America has great ideals and and people have fought and died for those ideals over time. They've believed them intensely. We need to recapture that energy um, so that people are willing to fight for them again. So I want to make an important point because you're right in that most of what they're learning in their classrooms is not obviously about critical race theory. Um, but there's two, two really disconcerting factors that I've seen just in my work at Speech First. One is that um, we have actually you know, requested materials and information that are being um, handed out and, and told through freshman orientations. Um, and so this is basically, and we've seen evidence of diversity, equity, inclusion training and like mandated trainings and kind of basically you see all this critical race theory stuff seeping out of that. Um, and so essentially what you're seeing is even though they're learning, you know, math, science and vocational skills in their classroom, the environment in which they're operating in is already kind of soaked with this critical race theory um, behavior. Like that's kind of already the environment that they're operating in. So it's kind of in a way training them to continue operating that environment, um, whether it be conscious or not after they graduate school. So that's one concern. The other is where they actually are teaching things like critical race theory, which is in, you see like schools of education um, and kind of how, how teachers are supposed to be essentially indoctrinating K through 12 students. So I'm curious what both of your thoughts are on, on, the, on those issues. Well, if I may very briefly, um, I, I, I think I agree with Sharice, uh, but I think it may be even worse than you described. There is this kind of administrative overlay um, that demands compliance belief in these kinds of things. And what Jay is saying is that, well, that exists, but a lot of people don't believe it. They just nod their head and obey, but you know, internally they don't agree. My contention is that things are, are, are worse than both of these um, arguments. Um, if, for instance, um, you know, once you start looking at English departments and what they're teaching, or not what they're teaching, not what books they're teaching. You know, there are all these laws in the states that like mandate that, you know, every college graduate needs to have studied the Federalist Papers, the Constitution, and the Declaration of Independence. What does that matter actually, if it's being taught from some alternative perspective, which it will be monopolized by? So these laws, and similarly is what I'm saying, just because you see a class, for example, in an English department in whatever university on Shakespeare, does not mean that all of the critical theory lenses are not being imposed onto that. That is largely true of English departments, it is largely true of history departments. I would be curious to find one, just one history department that teaches uh, Churchill's history of the Second World War. Uh, uh, just one. 
Um, I doubt that it exists. Or maybe teaches, a Hillsdale. Maybe, yeah, yes, <laughs> a Hillsdale, maybe. But, but you see how lopsided that is. Right. Yes, Hillsdale does that and no other university does. Or, or treats Thucydides, the, you know, the greatest ancient historian, with the kind of respect that he requires so as to learn something from him rather than to impose a feminist perspective or a race perspective or an LGBT perspective so as to just indict him and you know, flatter yourselves that you can dismiss him as a nothing that doesn't understand our times. So in other words, I think that to a great degree, there is far less salvageable in many, many of these institutions uh, than I think, um, well, the two of my um, <laughs> uh, colleagues well, in this conversation do. So I, um, I you know, um, I was a history major um, and I read those good things that you're embracing. I'm not that old, although I'm old uh, enough. Um, so if, we're not talking about that long ago where history departments would, would teach this in, in colleges. And, um, and look, there's a natural consequence to English and history departments for teaching nonsense. The natural consequence is people don't major in them. Uh, the majors in those humanities fields have been plummeting. And the number of jobs uh, for newly minted uh, PhDs in those fields are non-existent uh, because they don't need faculty because there are no students for them to teach. Um, and so there is, you know, there is the self-correction here that is occurring. But at the same time, you're right, we want positive vision. We don't just want people to run away from nonsense in the history departments. We want them to learn good history. Um, and you know, one other thing that we haven't talked about that I think might be helpful as a solution is conservatives should be interested in building new universities. It's been, it's been a century since we've had major universities built. Um, and there was a, 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 um, a spurt of them uh, from the late 19th to early 20th century of, of, of excellent new universities formed where wealthy individuals decided that they were going to just build new institutions. And their motivation was to reform higher education, right? They, they thought higher education at the time was, was essentially ministerial training and unscientific. But they didn't give, you know, a grant to Harvard to say build laboratories. They, they built new universities. They built Stanford, University of Chicago, Carnegie Mellon. They built new universities to compete with the old. And it worked. Um, Harvard, you know, built laboratories because they had to compete. Um, it seems to me that, that people on the right ought to be thinking about building new universities to compete. And especially if they can compete on a level playing field where there aren't subsidies, um, that indulge nonsense uh, in existing universities. I, I think that that we can gain some ground in teaching positive history and not just running away from negative history. Response to that, or yes, I, I I entirely agree with Jay that new universities ought to be started. Uh, Do you have a few billion? <laughs> because it'd be great if you did. No, but I know um, people that do. Oh, good, uh, good. Look. Uh, you're right. The University of Chicago was built basically overnight. I mean, astonishing. You know, these things are very much possible. Um, but uh, I, I would add that I, I, I still am not at all persuaded that simply building up parallel institutions is sufficient. Look, to, to, to put it as, as, as clearly as possible, 
American taxpayers who are subsidizing these rotten universities are being defrauded. They give their money, they send their kids to those places that they're paying for, their kids come back despising them and despising this nation. I, I, I don't think that it's okay for citizens to just say, well, that's okay. That's, that's just how free markets work. It's not how free markets work. That's not a free market. It's all tied up with all sorts of federal subsidies, as you said, ideologies that keep that together. You can create parallel institutions, which Jay, you are totally right on, is possible and should be done. And yet at the same time, you should be taking money away from those. So for example, you take a state that has a rotten university and you take away 50% of its money as a grant to the founding of a new university. I mean, these things are possible, they are doable if we start thinking in this, a more emergency-like way. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I entirely agree. I've, I've always been, um, I, w- I was giving a lecture some time ago at, at Bates College, um, uh, and there was a kid sitting in the front with a little Che t-shirt on. And I was, I was trying to you know, figure out, you know, did his parents know that they were essentially reducing his lifetime earnings, you know, by se- and sending them there and maybe make, making them hate them, right? And it occurred to me, well, may- maybe they kind of want that in some weird way. It's possible. Um, but but you're, you're, overall, though, this is not the main, the typical student. The typical student is very practical. And, and as, you know, Shree says to your point about ed schools indoctrinating CRT, I mean, I... I I was a professor in an ed school for the last 16 years. Um, uh, and I, I'm astounded if ed schools can teach anything, let alone indoctrinate CRT. I mean, we can't teach teachers how to, you know, be effective teachers of reading. Um, you know, so, so don't overstate, you know, how good universities are at indoctrinating nonsense, um, in part because they're not, they're not very capable uh, at those things, but in part because students don't really want it and they resist it. And they, but... Over time, Arthur is right, though, that we can't let people cynically nod their heads to nonsense without there being a consequence to it. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a real danger there uh, that if we don't act here and organize, um, that it will get enshrined in ways that are that are impossible to to. Uh, undo, but but I don't. I'm not quite as bleak as as Arthur, or even I guess maybe uh, uh, you, uh, Sharice, in, in that in that I I think that the, the average student is still not very interested in this stuff, and even the average faculty member is not very interested, and um, and there's a lot of cynicism. Now that cynicism is itself corrosive because it's it's a lack of belief in positive things, and we have to address that too. Um, but but I, I don't think everyone has been turned into a convert to the new religion of CRT, which if that were the case, we'd be in really serious trouble. So I wanna end on um, a topic that I think is really important for, and this has kind of been brought up with, Jay, you were talking about organizing um, on, on the right in order to kind of combat these ideas um, with messaging. So with, with the conservative movement and messaging, this is actually a really difficult topic to debate just because you do get accused, you know, there's always the risk, obviously, they're going to be accused of being racist or bigoted in some way. Um, so conservatives and, you know, Republican politicians have seemed to really be struggling coming together on any really good messaging on this. Not only that aspect, mostly out of fear and lack of courage, but also 
because per usual, conservatives are debating kind of on this rational plane of, of kind of theory and um, kind of more traditional ideas in the founding and based more on history when the far left progressives are kind of, they're debating on a very practical plane of, like you mentioned earlier, power grabbing and just kind of saying and doing, regardless of it, whether it's correct or proven right, um, saying and doing what is necessary in order to win the argument. Um, so there is clearly a disconnect with, with how the issue is being debated. I'm kind of curious what both of your thoughts are on um, good successful messaging, what good successful messaging would look like on this issue for the conservative movement. Well, uh, I would say, first of all, um, you know, this is what conservatives always do is just argue. You know, we have the data, <laughs> look, look at the data and nobody cares. The people that you're trying to win over don't mm -hmm. care. Um, so number one is just being a little more sober about our circumstances that, you know, 10 statistics um, stated in a row um, are, are irrelevant. Uh, so that's number one. Uh, number two is that the right has to understand. I mean, I, I, I do agree with Jay that there is a lot of cynicism in this movement. And the right, uh, whenever they are cynically called a racist, just recoils. It's mm -hmm. over. It's over. That's the bludgeon that ends everything. And maybe the but right- is, Isn't it losing some of its power? You know, if it's used too often and used recklessly and wrongly, isn't it losing some of its effectiveness? Yes, I think it is. I think that's right. Um, but uh, that should be furthered. Um, that these are, you know, th these are just titles used cynically so that uh, there can be no debate. That's it. But number two is, and Jay, you're right in consistently making this point, you have to ask, well, what precisely is it that you're defending? Okay, so you walk through these reckless accusations against you. Suppose the right is willing to do that, and there are parts of the right that are. Uh, President Trump did that. Um, what then are you for? And here's where it becomes very interesting. Uh, I think that it's very easy to say, well, we are for maintaining our civilizational standards and we will not back down from them. We will not back down from the rule of laws. That is the only thing that keeps this country together and they will be used on everybody equally without exceptions. Moreover, we believe in competence. That's our ideal. And if you are not competent, then you will not be put into a position, period. Without competence, the economy is over. The progress in the sciences are over. And these are things that we have to defend the line on relentlessly with a backbone and without any shame. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think, you know, the American experiment has been a wonderfully successful experiment. Um, we have a lot of good things that we believe in that we can... Uh, remind people of to get them excited again. I mean, the Constitution and Declaration of Independence, um, these things are great documents and they created a system of government that, that has been enormously successful um, in promoting freedom and prosperity uh, like no other country in the world. Um, so this American exceptionalism is our appeal, our positive appeal, and our, our rhetoric should be based around that. 
Uh, um, and it's odd to me, um, the attraction of, of um, fundamentally anti-American ideals um, in religious fervor at the same time that people are more prosperous and freer than they've ever been. Um, and, and without any critical examination, frankly, of how they got to be there. I mean, how'd they get to be so rich as to indulge complete nonsense, right? I mean, that um, there's an irony there. And I think there's a self-defeating quality to the other side in this debate, which helps us also. Um, uh, so I think we have good ideas. I, I, I think the Constitution would be a good place to start. Um, it's, it's a great document and we have a great system of government and yes, we have problems. Every, every society has problems. Every system of government has problems and we should be forthright about those problems and work to address them over time, which we have, and we're never perfect and we're never going to be perfect, but, but we should know what our ideals are and always be aspiring to those ideals. Um, Sam Huntington had a, a book, uh, American Politics, Promise of Disharmony, in which he said the American way of reform is to appeal back to the founding, that, that even 60s radicals, he claimed, were, were criticizing the, their elders for betraying American ideals, for betraying the founding. And um, what strikes me about current um, uh, CRT movement is they are not hearkening back to the founding. They are denouncing the founding as corrupt, as evil. Um, and I think they have a losing argument in that and we should take, take the other side and beat them. Great, well on that note, um, we can wrap up. Thank you everyone for joining us. This is Well Said, a bi-weekly podcast and live show um, where I interview policy experts, academics, students and activists on various issues in higher education, American culture and free speech. You can share this episode on Facebook or YouTube. Also, we are on podcasts through Anchor, Apple, Spotify. So feel free to give us a five-star rating if you like what you hear today. Um, I'm Sharice Trump, Jay and Arthur. That was Well Said. Thanks Thank so much. you. Thank you. Bye.